This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us today as this committee continues to seek to restore its position of conducting robust oversight. We greatly appreciate your willingness, like that of Secretary Blinken, to come before us for hearings, and that's refreshing. Let me also acknowledge that you and Secretary Blinken inherited a damaged and depleted State Department. As I documented in a committee report last year, Diplomacy in Crisis, the last administration's repeated assault on State Department personnel, management, and resources were, in my view, unconscionable and dangerous for long-term U.S. foreign policy interests. When you assume your position, morale was at its lowest point in decades. Confidence in leadership had decayed. Key bureaus had been gotten. In fairness, however, the institutional, budgetary, and morale problems of the Department are the result of many years, multiple administrations, and yes, congressional action and inaction as well. I think there is now broad and bipartisan consensus that we have reached a crisis point, and there is a bipartisan desire to address the core structural and resource issues that have too long plagued the Department. With the Department being led by people such as yourself who have dedicated so much of their careers to government service, I have been hoping to see a necessary effort to undertake a systematic reform and modernization effort. So today I look forward to hearing specifics. What is your thinking about reforming and modernizing the Department? Where do you see opportunities to ensure that resources are aligned with the Department's missions? What are you doing to address the morale crisis and stem the loss of talented foreign service and civil service officers? As the administration continues to de-emphasize our military presence around the world, where is the necessary diplomatic counterweight? There are a number of other specific issues I hope you'll address today. First, I hope you'll address the state's role in the Afghanistan evacuation. There's no doubt that the department personnel performed heroically, but arguably, had the department been better positioned and structured to get ahead of some of the issues, particularly processing Afghan SIVs, P1s, and P2s, the heroism wouldn't have been necessary. Much like in the early days of the COVID pandemic when tens of thousands of American citizens were stranded around the world, while State Department personnel ultimately performed Herculean tasks to launch a successful repatriation effort, it took weeks of heavy lifting and congressional pressure and suggests the Department needs to fundamentally alter institutional structures to deal with emergency contingencies, planning, and operations. I'd also like to hear your plans to address a longstanding priority of mine, significantly expanding diversity at the department, including long overdue improvements in recruitment and retention. Study after study has shown that a more diverse workforce leads to better decisions and outcomes for institutions. And it is essential for the State Department as an institution that represents our country to the world that we represent our values as a nation in celebrating all Americans. I'd also like to hear your thinking about how the United States can best position ourselves to counter China in the conduct of diplomacy around the globe. China now has more diplomats, more missions, more concerted public diplomacy, and more money for its diplomacy than we do. In parts of Africa and Latin America, we are being badly outlapped. And the holdup of confirming ambassadors by this body is certainly also hampering U.S. foreign policy objectives to be competitive with China. Relatedly, I also hope that you'll address staffing and resource shortages that hamper our diplomacy. 
For example, a recent State Department Inspector General report found that the Africa Bureau has faced persistent staffing shortages and that the department has not appropriately prioritized the Bureau's needs. Critical posts, such as our embassy in Niger, Niger uh, lacked a political and economic officer for months. And I look forward to hearing about the department's plans to create a new Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy and a special envoy for critical and emerging technology. As you well know, we're facing a new era of international cooperation and competition on cyber and technology issues. Real systematic change in how the United States responds to digital innovation will require swift institutional adaptation, and I believe these new structures are the right first steps. Finally, I'd like to hear from you on the department's response to the so-called anomalous health incidents, or what some of us call Havana syndrome. For years, the department did not take this seriously, stigmatizing those who reported incidents and failed to get those affected prompt treatment. I appreciate that you and the Secretary have prioritized this issue, and I know you're committed to protecting our personnel, but the department's response continues to fall short of what we owe our personnel and their families, and we look forward to hearing specifics. It's a, it's a broad agenda, but that's the nature of the undertaking that you have. With that, Mr. Secretary, let me turn things over to the ranking member for his statement. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, Secretary McCune, for being here today. It's been nearly 20 years since Congress passed an authorization for the State Department. Over that time, the Department's need for reform of its operations and management has grown enormously. As such, I've spent the past two and a half years working with the Chairman on a much-needed State uh, Department authorization bill, partly on my watch and uh, partly on his watch. Uh, we have been, not been successful to date, obviously. If we want to exercise full oversight of the State Department, uh, which is uh, the charge of this committee, we must regularly and consistently authorize the State Department. If we don't, we will get more of the same, with the State Department choosing when and how it will listen to this committee. As the Chairman knows and, uh, and I experienced during last Congress, getting the State Department to do the basics, provide witnesses for hearings, feedback on legislation, and updates before issues hit the news is extremely difficult without authorizing bills. I look forward to working with the Chairman and, uh, and you, Mr. McEwen, on getting a State Department authorization across the finish line this Congress. Since today's hearing is also about the state of the State Department, we must address the Department's role in the hazardous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Despite the Administration's efforts to put Afghanistan in the rearview mirror, it remains a pressing national security concern for the Senate and for the American people. It's been over a month since uh, Secretary Blinken appeared before this committee, and we have yet to receive the Secretary's responses to our questions for the record uh, that were propounded at that time. This is an unacceptable delay, and we expect better responsiveness from the Department, which they've always promised but have never executed on. On the issue of continued evacuations, in September, Secretary Blinken assured us uh, that there were just 100 Americans remaining in Afghanistan that wished to depart. 100. Just last week, however, the team responsible for continued evacuations of Americans told us that they were working on over 170 Americans who wished to depart from more than 360 Americans who remain there. And the list is growing. I want to make note and ask, uh, and ask us to enter into the record aggregate data my staff has collected from 25 Senate offices about the botched evacuations. It should be noted that this is a snapshot 
of just one quarter of the Senate's, uh, of the Senate's work to get people out. We know that 16,688 cases were referred to the State Department during and immediately after the NEO. We only know of 110 individuals of the 16,000 who were successfully evacuated out of Afghanistan to the U.S. or to a third country. I've been working on one flight with several U.S. citizens and over, uh, with over 100 minors uh, on that flight. I'm, I'm also curious about the state of uh, uh, Embassy Kabul's workforce, particularly the fate of our locally employed staff. We owe a great debt to the Afghans, uh, Afghans who, who assisted our diplomatic efforts in Afghanistan for 20 years. And it's shameful that we were not, they were not all evacuated before the administration's uh, arbitrary withdrawal. I look forward to hearing more details on establishing predictable mechanisms for the continued departure of Americans and the Afghans who assisted us in our mission there. Last Thursday, I, along with Armed Services Committee Ranking Member Inhofe and Homeland Security Ranking Member Portman, sent a letter to the Inspectors General of State, DOD, DHS, and USAID requesting a joint audit on the botched evacuation and the failure to deliver on the Special Immigrant Visa Program. As I mentioned, at Secretary Blinken's hearing, the Department of Defense has a lot to answer for on uh, SIVs as well. The uh, bungled Afghan Afghanistan evacuation was a failure not only of the interagency, but also of leadership at the top. We will not accept separate audits from each agency just pointing fingers at the others. We've, uh, we've seen a dramatic uptick in terrorist activity in Afghanistan, demonstrating the Taliban lacks the will and capability to prevent terrorists from using Afghanistan as a safe haven, or for that matter, uh, even governing in the most basic sense. Coordination with Afghanistan's neighbors to address terror threats is critical. And I look forward to hearing an, an update uh, uh, from you today. I'm not surprised, but I'm disappointed to hear that the Taliban is blocking women and girls from the workplace and higher education. Yet the department has signaled the intent to restart non-humanitarian assistance to Afghanistan without securing concessions from the Taliban on these important issues. I have no doubt you're going to uh, uh, face some strenuous questions uh, on that particular issue from this committee and others. Any further expansion of long-term assistance to Afghanistan requires a discussion with Congress. Finally, I and 29 of my colleagues introduced the Afghanistan Terrorism Oversight and Accountability Act. I've asked the chairman that we mark up this important bill soon. Uh, Mr. McEwen, I look forward to working with you on this matter. That I'll yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, with that, uh, Mr. Secretary, the floor is yours. We'd ask you to summarize uh, your statement in five minutes or so, and uh, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. Mr. Secretary. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee. I appreciate you having me here today. This is the first time. I've appeared before you since I was confirmed in March, so I'm happy to be back here uh, to report on many of the issues uh, that you've raised in your opening statements. I know there is significant support on this committee for the department's mission and its personnel, and I welcome the discussion of our authorization priorities and your priorities and hope to build on the work that you have started. I first want to take a moment to recognize the State Department's remarkable public servants. It would be hard to overstate the unique challenges faced by our global workforce, especially during a lengthy global pandemic. Their resilience embodies the truest spirit of public service. 
I also want to speak to the department's work since I came before you in March, including the steps taken to address some of the issues that you raised then. In May, the president submitted his budget request for fiscal year 2022. He requested a 10% increase for the State Department and USAID, which included the largest personnel increase for the State Department in a decade. It's a budget that reflects the importance of investing in our people and our technology. And we appreciate the support for these priorities in the Congress to date. President Biden has been clear from his first day in office about his commitment to put diplomacy at the center of our foreign policy. The president's first visit to a major cabinet department was to the State Department, an intentional signal of the importance. It's on, yeah. The importance he places on diplomacy. Secretary Blinken is equally committed to this objective. Today at the Foreign Service Institute, later this morning, the Secretary will publicly outline the Department's modernization agenda, which has five pillars. And I believe he came to speak to you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, Senator Risch yesterday about some of these issues. First, building, on the, building the Department's capacity and expertise in areas critical to our national security, including cyber and emerging tech, climate, and global health. Second, elevating new voices and fostering a climate of initiative and innovation within the Department. Third, we're determined to compete for talent and to build and retain a diverse, dynamic, and entrepreneurial workforce. The Secretary has appointed the Department's first ever Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. We are addressing a number of issues that make it challenging for officers to serve, from family member employment to assignment restrictions to the challenges that LGBTQ and employees of color face serving overseas. Fourth, we are working to modernize our technology, our communications, and our analytical capabilities. The final pillar focuses on our overseas engagement to ensure that our diplomats can conduct in-person diplomacy that's essential to advancing foreign policy goals. This gets at the issue of uh, risk, risk management. Pursuant to the President's National Security Memorandum 3, which he issued in February, an initiative that he undertook to revitalize our na nation's foreign policy and the national security workforce. We've already taken steps to make systemic improvements in the way we recruit and retain employees. On recruitment, we've established a volunteer recruiter corps with 500 foreign and civil service employees who will assist our efforts to recruit a diverse workforce. We've also requested funds and authorization for a paid student internship program. On retention, we've broadened access to childcare we're enhancing telework opportunities, we're expanding eligibility for the student loan repayment program, and we are reviewing our performance management systems. On advancing diversity, inclu equity, inclusion, and accessibility, we launched the department's first DEIA leadership council, and as noted, the first chief diversity officer. We've also sought to advance diversity in our senior appointments. There's a lot of other work going on that I can speak to during the Q&A. We've made considerable progress, but there's a lot of work ahead. We have reduced the lengthy hiring timeline and made security clearance processing more efficient, but we need to do better. Our passport processing during the peak summer travel season was inadequate. Uh, I'm not going to try to gloss over it. We've surged resources in recent months that have measurably reduced waiting times. Finally, I just want to thank the committee for the large number of nominees, over 40, who've had their hearings in the last two months. Uh, but we still have 80 nominees pending before the Senate, many of them on the executive calendar. As I understand it, most of the confirmations are delayed due to unrelated policy dis disagreements. 
The development and execution of our national security policy depends on having senior leaders in place in our embassies and in Washington. In, our, in the first nine months of the Biden-Harris administration, only five ambassadors to countries have been confirmed, just four of them yesterday. Our security and interests are substantially undermined because so many of our senior leadership roles are not occupied by Senate-confirmed officials. While we can do more as an administration to improve our part of the process, the level of delay and obstruction we have faced is unprecedented, and I speak with knowledge of working here for 20 years. I urge the Senate to act on these nominations with all haste. With that, I look forward to your questions, sir. All right. Um We'll start a round of five-minute questions. Um, so I heard what you say in the broad outlines, but what would be your top three priorities for assuring that the department has the organization, the tools, and the resources it needs to meet its mission? Well, the first priority, sir, is getting adequate funding. And as I said, we're very appreciative of where we stand in the appropriations process. Uh, to date, uh, Senator Coons uh, being the new chairman of the subcommittee on appropriations. Second, uh, investing in our workforce uh, to try to build a workforce to face the challenges of, of the next several decades uh, at a strategic level, but also, as I mentioned, uh, retention is a real concern. I mean, our, our attrition numbers are not as high as you might think, but uh, Anecdotally, in, in some surveys, there's suggestion that a significant number of employees are thinking about leaving. So that's the canary in the coal mine that we have to worry about, and so we have to address a lot of the, a lot of the pain points that make it hard to serve uh, and that undermine morale. And so we'll, we won't hit a lot of home runs, but we're trying to hit a lot of singles that add up to something to make their lives better. And then <clears throat> within the organization, you know, we need to empower people um, because it's a big org organization with a global workforce. And there's been a tendency over the years, and I've been part of it in prior administrations, to try to manage everything with an 8,000-mile screwdriver overseas. So we have to empower our workforce at our missions, but also in, in Washington uh, to generate creative ideas and, and fully utilize our workforce. So that's a, that's a cultural shift. That's nothing that we can do with resources, and it's going to take uh, all of the leadership believing in it and having the back of our employees. Uh, speaking about um, the staffing questions, uh, something I have been at for 25 years between the House and the Senate is the diversity in the foreign and civil service, uh, particularly in the State Department, which has one of the rest, worst records uh, of any of the uh, federal departments. It's not only one of the best ways of representing the United States and our values abroad, it's also, I believe, a national security imperative. So how are you working to uh, currently and how do you intend in the future to hire, retain, and promote a diverse foreign and civil service? I hope you're looking at, when I, when I have looked into this issue in the past, uh, the oral exam uh, has always been a, a, um, a somewhat amorphous process to me in terms of who can communicate well orally and who cannot. And then, of course, the review panel seems to be certain types of people. So uh, that's, that's one of the elements. And we always hear uh, about recruitment. Well, 
if you, you have to recruit at diverse places to get a diverse workforce. There are some great institutions that are known for their foreign service and policy uh, ed- education, but they don't necessarily provide the most diverse student body uh, as a way to recruit. So can you talk to me a little bit about this? I'm happy to, Senator. It's probably worth a longer conversation separately, uh, which we're happy to do. <clears throat> so as, as I mentioned, we have the Chief Diversity Officer, uh, Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley, and it's not just an officer, it's an office that we are staffing uh, with ultimately about a dozen people, including people who understand data analysis. And one of her um, primary tasks that she wants to undertake is really getting at the data so we understand at a disaggregated level what the workforce looks like and what the promotion uh, statistics look like, and then understanding what are the barriers to, to advancement within these, um, w- within these services. She sits on some of the key personnel committees. We have the, what's called the deputies committee that recommends career officers for ambassador positions. She also sits on the committee that selects deputy chiefs of mission and principal officers. Um, she has put out guidance to, to bureaus on more transparent and objective approaches to hiring. She's putting together a, uh, a broad diversity and inclusion strategic plan. Across the department, every bureau now typically has a, somebody who's assigned to this task, and we've got a department-wide diversity council that the secretary chairs. On the recruitment issue, I have to tell you, I just looked at the statistics of people who are taking the exam, uh, and it's not a very good picture. Uh, both the gender parity uh, is not there, the ratio between men and women taking the exam is two to one. And uh, underrepresented communities are not signing up to take the exam. Our Human Resources Bureau has done some analysis on both why women aren't signing up to take the test and why African Americans in particular are not doing very well on the test. And so that will guide our uh, thinking on how we try to strengthen our recruitment. One of our programs for diversifying the pipeline, the Wrangell and Pickering fellowships are really critical, and we've, we've increased those by 50%, and we'll sustain that. Um, but there's a lot of different things we need to work on, and we, we can't flip a switch and improve it, but we know that if we leave in a few years, the Secretary and I, and we have not made material progress, we will have failed. So. Well, I, I appreciate all the statistical information, and for 25 years I've been accruing statistical information and uh, making the case that we are not having a diverse workforce. And that information, I think, is very well situated already to know what the reality is. The question becomes, as I said to the Secretary yesterday, change starts at the top. And if the top, and you as the uh, Secretary in charge of management, if you make it clear to all of those underneath you that part of their performance review is how well they've worked to bring people, diverse uh, group of individuals into their respective departments, uh, then that message will get out there. Uh, So uh, I hope that the leadership is pursuing a very clear message of how we are going to make judgments about, in part, about how promotions and uh, other opportunities exist because but for that, we will talk, uh, as we have for 25 years, about the statistics and we'll be at the same place. So this is not new to this. This is not an issue of this administration. 
uh, but it is an ongoing issue, and I would hope that this is the administration that begins to create change at the end of the day. So if I, I know you're over time, sir, if I could say a couple things on this. <clears throat> One, uh, the Foreign Service Promotion System ha has the guides promotion with something they call the promotion precepts. Uh, and those get revised every few years, and we're working on the revision right now. Uh, it's a significant change um, in the way that we do it. And we're looking at a specific precept on diversity and inclusion, which would be, I think, a game changer. Well, we look um, forward to working with you on this. Let me, let me turn to Senator Rich. We'll have a further discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. McEwen, one of the things that's really troubling uh, to us is uh, we understand that uh, the State Department's uh, indicated, um, perhaps decided already, that uh, they're going to restart non-humanitarian assistance staff to, to the Afghans. Now, set aside humanitarian assistance. We're all already seeing a lot of pictures of starvation and what have you, and they say the winter's going to be particularly bad. But I want to talk about non-humanitarian assistance. What are we talking about here? What, what is the, what's the State Department doing? What do you plan to do? So, Mr. Uh, Senator Risch, we've done a review uh, within the department and with USAID on all of our assistance programs that were in the pipeline with Afghanistan and created what we call a stoplight chart, category of green, category of yellow, and category of red, the red being bilateral programs directly with the Afghan government that we're, we're not able to continue. The yellow ones we're taking a look at for further review, but none have been approved to move forward. And then the green are programs that are, in, in several respects, uh, similar to humanitarian assistance. Some of the things, and we can get you a longer list, but uh, the notes give us, I have. Give us some examples of that. Yeah. Sheltering vulnerable women, basic education, water and sanitation, health. They're humanitarian-like, but they've been considered in the economic assistance basket, if you will, in our categorization. Well, one, one of the things, of course, we always uh, concerned about when dealing with countries like Afghanistan, how is this money going to be uh, handled? If this gets in the hands of the Taliban, I, uh, I've got serious reservations whether it's going to go to taking care of women and girls to, to go to school and that sort of thing, since we're hearing lots of stories about them shutting down schools and stopping women from the workforce, removing women judges uh, from their positions. How, what, what are you doing about this? How, how are you handling this? So, Senator, the aid is flowing through either non-governmental organizations or uh, UN agencies that have long records of working in uh, difficult uh, contexts and in the midst of civil wars like in Syria or the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, so they have systems and, and ability to ensure that the assistance doesn't fall into the wrong hands. We're, you gave us a statute in the continuing resolution, no funds shall go to the Taliban. So we, we have a legal prohibition on uh, that occurring, and we have to be very mindful of it. And if we get reports that money is being siphoned off, well, then we will just stop the flow of, the, of that program. Can you give us any more specific examples of, uh, of where this money is going and specifically how it's being kept out of the hands of the Taliban. It's, it's hard to conceive that money flows into the country, and the Taliban, obviously, they have a design to get their hands on it. How do you keep it out of their hands? So on the humanitarian assistance side, I mean, the types of sectors we're working in are food and nutrition assistance, the health sector, uh, including COVID-19 assistance, emergency shelter uh, and relief supplies, 
you know, we're working at the provincial and, and local district level, and the, the level of governance at, in the provinces is, is pretty mixed, so I'm not sure the Taliban is omnipresent everywhere in controlling what's happening. But we, I'm happy to try to get you a more detailed briefing with folks working on these issues directly. I, I would appreciate that. Um, let, let's talk about the, uh, uh, the evacuations. How many Americans are left in Afghanistan as we sit here today? So the number we're currently tracking, Senator, and I know, uh, as you mentioned in your statement, it seems to be going up as we learn people who are there. Uh, the number we were tracking as of a couple of days ago, total is a little over 400. And we break that down into two categories because we're constantly communicating that with them to see if they are ready to depart Afghanistan. And the number of people who are ready to depart is around 225. And the, those they say they're not ready is about 100, little, little south of 190. And these numbers change all the time. Even somebody who told us last week they were ready to depart, if we call them today and say, there's a flight in two days, can you get on it? And say, oh, well, we're not ready this week. Can we go next week? Yeah, I appreciate that. I suspect that's the exception as opposed to the rule that uh, when the people say they're ready to go, I would suspect most of them are, ready, are really, really ready to go. Yes, you would think, but you know, people have big extended families. They have sure. roots in the country, and you know, they're human beings. They, make, they change their minds. Right, I get that. Um, the number, like I said, as we surveyed the offices, uh, we find about 16,000 cases that have been referred uh, to your department. And I got to tell you, um, I have people that are personal friends uh, uh, that uh, have been working on flights out of there, and they just aren't getting the help. I mean, they're being told, over, they, they've got, uh, the department's got every excuse there is as to why they can't get the people out of there. And these are people that, that helped. Um, every every office, I think, in the Senate got calls from veterans from over there and other people who've worked over there and said, look, here's a list. Th these people went the extra mile for us. They're going to die. Their families are going to die if we don't get them out of there. And there just isn't anything happening. So um, I, I understand the leadership of that office has changed uh, uh, two or three times. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, as the person in charge of management, I would strenuously urge that you personally take uh, take a look at that uh, and uh, see if you can't move that on because I'm telling you this is not a partisan issue by any stretch of the imagination uh, this is a bipartisan issue and uh, I know that my friends on the other side of the aisle are as frustrated as we are that we have left behind uh, some uh, some pretty bad messes that we should have cleaned up and haven't yet so I'd urge you to take a, a, a personal look at that thank you mr. chairman I'll yield back Thank you, Thank Senator. You, Senator. I'm, I'm happy to speak to it if you give me a minute, Mr. Chairman. But if you don't, I can catch up with Senator Rich later on this issue. Okay, could we hear from him? If you want to respond for a moment. Uh, I'll speak briefly. Um, you know, I've followed this pretty closely, Senator Rich, uh, and meet with Beth Jones, who's the head of our team working on these issues now. The biggest obstacle right now to getting people out of Afghanistan is the Taliban, which keeps changing its mind about what the rules are and, and permitting people to depart. But we're working, uh, first, first instance, trying to get Americans out and green card holders, but also people who worked with us, including uh, people who worked with the U.S. Embassy, uh, and trying to get some regular flow of people out of Kabul and holding the Taliban to their commitment to permit freedom to travel. Some of the charter groups that I think you've, you alluded to, many of them have been working out of flights out of Mazari Sharif, 
where we had a much harder time getting fidelity on the manifest. We've had issues of stowaways on the planes or the flight crews uh, coming into Aliudade and Qatar wanting to stay there and not go back. Most of the flights out of Mazar want to come to our, the base in, in Qatar, so we have a, an agreement with Qatar. If, if these planes come, these people are likely coming to the United States. We're not going to leave them there in Qatar, so we need to get a better fidelity on the manifest, and that's been a a huge challenge. I'll give you one example. Early on in this process, there was a flight that was being organized, and we were told there were about 10 or 12 Americans and 200 or so Afghans. And we checked the passport records and validated that, yes, there were seven or eight American citizens on the list. And then we called them, and most of them were in the United States. They were not in Afghanistan. So just drilling down and really understanding who was getting on that flight, because we have nobody there on the ground in Mazar, uh, because once they get the cutter, we own them. And so I understand the frustration. We've been working very closely with a consortium of veterans groups about this, uh, but we, um, we're working it hard every day, I can tell you. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Deputy Secretary McKeon, for being here this morning and for your willingness to respond to our questions. I, I know you have offered um, to sit down with me on the um, Havana syndrome attacks, the also known as um, anomalous health incidents. But I would be remiss if I didn't raise some of my concerns today at this hearing because I continue to be disappointed by the State Department's response, even though I've heard from both you and Secretary Blinken that you are committed to ensuring that people, um, people who have been affected are, get the medical care they need. Um, but what I'm still hearing from victims is that that is not happening always. And so there's clearly a disconnect between what's happening at the top levels of the State Department and how people are being treated in some cases. So let, let me ask you a, a couple of questions. First of all, um, Ambassador Spratlin, who was designated at the department to be the point person on this, um, left in September. I think it's been about 40 days since she's been gone. And the secretary said that he was committed to ensuring that someone would replace her. So do you have any sense of when that is going to happen? And is there a protocol that is provided to all of our embassy personnel, all of our ambassadors, for how to treat reports of these kinds of attacks and get people medical care? Yeah, thank you, Senator. <clears throat> On Ambassador Spratlin, she performed great service and we're sorry to see her go. Um, I expect the secretary to make an announcement about a replacement in the next day or two. In terms of protocols, so when an officer at post reports an incident, uh, they are instructed in, to either report it to the medical unit or the diplomatic security the re office, the regional security office. And both of those offices have a standard protocol. The, the RSO has uh, a questionnaire that the officers fills out, and then that's reported back to Washington. And then the medical officer, whether it's a doctor or a nurse, uh, has this, what it's called a triage tool. And similarly, it's a, a medical assessment of various things. But they're, they're all being asked the same question, so we can try to have consistency in the data. And then if, if their symptoms are serious enough, uh, some officers are medevaced. And back here in Washington, we've recently um, organized a contract with Johns Hopkins University 
medical system to get people into care quickly if they need it there. I know there's been interest in uh, getting folks in Walter Reed, but that's not typically a fast process, and the, and the Hopkins contract allows us to get people more immediate care. And I've had the opportunity to question a number of the ambassadorial nominees about this issue and whether they had been briefed by the State Department, and I don't think there was anybody who said they had actually been briefed. Oh, well, that, that surprised me, Senator. I spoke, you know, we have this course called the Ambassadorial Seminar for uh, nominees for positions, whether they've been confirmed or not, out at the Foreign Service Institute. Uh, I spoke to the class in August, as did Ambassador Spratlin. Uh, I spoke about a lot of issues, but I, I, I touched on this issue. And there's a class going on right now. I'm speaking to them next week about, about this issue. So who, whoever told you that skipped the class that day, which would not be surprising because they don't go, go to the class every day. Okay, well, this was two weeks ago. And uh, so... I'm glad to hear that, that this, there is an ongoing. And is there a written protocol that people are provided? You mentioned the questions that. So we, there, have been, there have been several guidance cables to post uh, around the world, both classified and unclassified, about what to do, how to report, um, emphasizing that there's no stigma for those who, who wish to report. Both the Diplomatic Security Service and the Medical Bureau have done their own messages to their uh, individual workforces. I think Dr. Padgett, the head of the Medical Bureau, did a town hall on this issue within the last couple of weeks. So there's a lot of communication, both to the workforce at large, but also the units who have to deal with these issues directly. Thank you. Um, as we're talking about Afghanistan and going forward, obviously what's happening to women and girls there is a, a critical concern for, I think, probably all Americans. The Secretary has said that he expected to appoint someone to coordinate a strategy around how to respond on Afghan women and girls. That person has not yet been appointed. Do you expect that to happen soon? And can you tell us who that is so that we can work with um, whoever is appointed to address concerns that we're hearing both from Afghans but also thinking about how we can be helpful in the United States? I know that's still the Secretary's intention. I confess I've lost the thread on where we are on selecting a person, so when I come see you next week to talk about AHI, I'll have a better answer. Good, thank you. Hopefully you'll have the name of a person Even better. to share with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Romney. Deputy Secretary McKeon, thank you for appearing today and appreciate the uh, chance to ask you a, a few questions. Uh, I begin by uh, saying something that I think we can all agree uh, with, or almost all of us can, which was the, the uh, Afghanistan withdrawal uh, was a very sad day in American history and in hum human history uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, but at this stage, one of the things we're all concerned about is um, uh, that the number of people who are working with us and working with our military who are fighting for our values who are nonetheless still uh, in Afghanistan uh, I understand that an Afghanistan task force was created to help get these uh, individuals out, um, but I, I, I'm interested in understanding how many people are associated with that task force. Is it effectively getting people out? W what is the state of that of that work now? Yeah, thank you, Senator Romney, and I concur in what you said at the beginning. Uh, and I know that uh, there was a Marine from Utah who lost his life on August 26. So, you know, as the Secretary said, we have a special relationship with the Marines and. A lot of State Department officers knew some of those Marines from service in other posts. 
So we have a task force that's led by a former ambassador, Beth Jones, that's looking across the continuum of how we're trying to get people out, which is how are we helping to facilitate travel out of Afghanistan at what we call the transit points or lily pads and at military bases now in the Middle East primarily, and then bringing them to the United States uh, for resettlement activities. The current, there's been some turnover in the task force as people have gone back to their jobs and then we issued a new call for recruits. Uh, recently we put out a department-wide call for people to come work on the task force and 140 or so people raised their hands, but I'll, I'll have to get to the precise number of people working on it uh, in the department. There are also people working out at the military bases on the resettlement work and at the bases in the Middle East who are either state or USAID people. I, Primary, the, the first priority right now, as I said, is American citizens and green card holders, but we're also working uh, to evacuate Afghans at risk and other people closely associated with the United States government. There's a number of applicants um, for the Special Immigrant Visa Program who already have a visa. They were issued a visa back in August, or we've given them what we call an electronic visa. So we're also working to try to arrange flights for them. Deputy Secretary, I, I would, would just note that, at least speaking for myself, if there's need for additional resources, uh, financial resources to provide additional personnel to speed this process, uh, I would, for one, be very anxious to provide that support. I, I think we have a moral responsibility, an American commitment to, uh, to help those who helped us and leave no one behind, not just our own citizens, but others who fought alongside us. Yeah, on on a very tip, a very different uh, uh, area, um, many of us have a great deal of concern about what, what China's uh, ambitions might be with regards to Taiwan. Uh, one, because of the, uh, the people there who've enjoyed uh, a, a freedom from the heavy hand of the Communist Chinese Party, but also uh, for our own interests, uh, particularly given the fact, for instance, that the great majority of the world's uh, uh, semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan, and this would be an attractive uh, get for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, what, what is or what can the State Department be doing to make sure that China understands what the consequence would be? I'm not talking about military consequence, but the consequence would be uh, of, of them taking a, a, an effort, uh, a military effort, to, uh, to grab Taiwan. Senator, this is not something I work on very often, but I'm familiar with the general contours of our Taiwan policy. Uh, as you know, it's grounded in the Taiwan Relations Act and our commitment to Taiwan's self-defense and providing their legitimate self-defense needs, which those arms sales uh, go through the State Department approval process. I think politically it's a broader uh, campaign that we do directly with the Chinese but with other governments to make it clear that coercion by China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan or, or, God forbid, uh, the efforts to seek uh, to change the status quo by non-military means will not be accepted by the United States and, and the international community. I, I guess I, uh, the term will not be accepted by, uh, I, I, would like, I would love to have that expanded upon, not necessarily right here in this hearing, but, but to make it very clear to, to China what the consequence would be. I mean, oftentimes we, we put in place sanctions on people who do things we don't like. The problem is the things we don't like have already occurred when those sanctions uh, are put in place. I would love to be very clear to the Chinese Communist Party about what, 
what would occur, not just on the part of the United States, but our, of our allies and friends around the world, were they to take kinetic action against the, the people of, of Taiwan and, uh, and think that that specificity might be helpful in help, helping the, them calculate just exactly what the cost, uh, and I'm talking about the diplomatic and economic cost might be, uh, were they to take such effort. Thank you, Deputy Secretary. Appreciate your participation today. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Secretary McCann, welcome. Uh, it's, I thank you again for your leadership at the State Department. Uh, let me first follow up on a point that Senator Risch brought up in regards to Afghanistan and the procedures being used to help those that are vulnerable out of Afghanistan, whether they are U.S. citizens, whether they're eligible for our special visas, or whether they're those that are at risk because of the Taliban government. I sent a letter to the State Department about a week ago and asked for a response before this hearing, and I've not gotten one, uh, in regards to the apparent lack of transparency and, and openness uh, in individual cases that we have. Before, uh, we, uh, during the withdrawal, uh, the evacuation, we had a pretty open process with the State Department on individual cases. That seemed to have changed uh, once uh, uh, the, um, our presence was no longer in Afghanistan. Uh, I just really wanted to point out, I was disappointed I didn't get a response, but I do look forward to getting that response and following up with you as to how you're going to be working with our individual offices on the, the still significant amount of inquiries we get in regards to vulnerable people that are still remaining in Afghanistan. Well, Senator, I I'm told by our head of legislative affairs sitting behind me that the letter should have been delivered this morning. I, I looked at a draft last night, so if you don't have it, we'll make sure that you get it after this hearing. I thank you for that. Uh, I, first, I, I really um, I, I'm very supportive of the announcements being made today, the five areas that you mentioned for significant uh, reform within the State Department. I agree with Chairman Menendez's uh, initial statements of how over a long period of time we've seen a decline of the support for our uh, foreign service officers and our diplomacy mission. And so I do think it needs to be reinvigorated, and I think the outline that you announced today is, is the right way forward uh, for us to have those discussions. I do encourage us to have a robust interaction as, the, as these plans are being implemented, because uh, we're certainly going to have some uh, uh, comments. We may not be in total agreement with every move, but we certainly want to work together uh, to achieve the objectives that you've set out. So let me mention an area that gives me great concern, and that is we've seen in regards to the training of our diplomatic service, uh, foreign service people, that we've cut back pretty dramatically in their ability uh, to get the type of training necessary to carry out those missions. We've also seen a decline within the mission's capacity uh, to deal with the core values that make America the strong nation it is in promoting democratic institutions and in advancing human rights and dealing with anti-corruption me measures in country. Uh, we, we just don't have the capacity within our missions to carry this out, and we don't have the trained Foreign Service officers in order to, to advance these core mission uh, objectives. So we in Congress are looking at at uh, following President Biden's leadership to advance these values, but we need to have in country the capacity to deliver on that. 
So will you just share with us the priorities of making sure that we have the training resources available for our foreign service officers as well as the capacity in mission to deal with advancing these values? Yeah, thank you, Senator Cardin. <clears throat> On the first issue, we're, and it's mentioned in my longer statement for the record, I don't think I hit it on the oral, in the oral statement. We're trying to build in what Secretary Powell first had a vision for, which is a training float. That is a sufficient number of people in the workforce so that people can go off and get training uh, and we don't lose our capability at missions and in Washington. We have a training float now to some degree because people go take language training for six to 12 months, but we need to build in a, a bigger cadre of people so that we can have that training and professional development float so people can go on interagency rotations or even go outside the government for a rotation. So we've, in the 22 budget, we've asked for 500 new positions. Uh, we've been ambitious in our submission to OMB for the 23 budget to try to continue to build on that, but obviously that's a decision that would still need to be made. Then with regard to democracy and human rights and the core values the president has embraced is central to his foreign policy There's broad guidance to, to our missions and our workforce about how to uh, speak to these issues and, and amplify them. We're holding, the, ho the President's hosting a summit for democracy later this year, um, which will be the first of a couple. In terms of the training for these officers to, to carry these messages, I'll have to get back to you on exactly what we do at the Foreign Service Institute. I know there are some courses on human rights uh, but I'm not familiar with all the details. Uh, I would just underscore the summit. We all support the summit being held and the president's leadership on that. There'll be countries participating in this summit that have challenges in regards to current trends on democracy. I hope that we're very direct in our messaging uh, about the importance of not backsliding on democratic principles. And then lastly, Mr. Chairman, I would just want to support your comments in regards to diversity, and I would hope that the State Department would work with us, keep us informed as to the strategies they're using in order to make sure that our State Department workforce represents our country and the diversity of our country. Thank you. Uh, I understand Senator Young is with us virtually. Senator Young, are you with us virtually? I am. Uh, yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. All right. Thank you, Chairman. Mr. McCune, uh, I wish we could spend this hearing looking at long-term strategic resourcing issues for the State Department. I wish we had the luxury of rethinking uh, the State Department, of evaluating new horizons of diplomatic efforts throughout the world. I especially wish we could discuss how we're shifting our focus to Asia to deal with the growing threats to national security from a rising China. Instead, we must first attend to this administration's uh, suboptimal withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, its careless failure to treat allies with respect to its self-inflicted wounds that have sapped our nation of vital resources at a critical time in our uh, nation's history. So I, I wanna start with a very simple yes or no question, sir. Has our withdrawal from Afghanistan freed up resources at the State Department 
to focus on other strategic priorities in Asia, such as the threat posed by the uh, Chinese Communist Party? Yes or no, sir? Well, we're spending fewer resources in Afghanistan. That's correct, although some of these resources may get rescinded in the appropriations process. But it's not a yes or no. So, so it's freed up resources to focus on other strategic priorities. We're not more focused on Afghanistan now than uh, we were a couple of years ago. In terms of our overall resources, that's correct. We still have a focus on the enduring commitment to Americans and green card holders and Afghans who've helped us to try to bring them out of the country. But yes, we. Okay. We have fewer I'm, I'm, department resources devoted to Afghanistan, but as I mentioned, we had a pretty big assistance pipeline, some of which probably will get rescinded in the appropriations process. All right, Mr. McKinnon, well, let me follow up. I, I, I'm a little skeptical uh, only because I, I, I know the nature of the withdrawal has forced the department to, to pull officers and staff from Asia and throughout the world to stand up multiple crisis teams. And those teams are desperately trying to catch up to the crisis on the ground. We know diplomats have spent hundreds of hours reassuring allies and trying to repair our damaged reputation. It doesn't sound like a, a strategic refocusing. So can you provide specific numbers of personnel and funding that have been freed up as a result of the, the withdrawal, sir? I'll have to get you those numbers. For the record, Senator Young, what I would say is we certainly have not lost focus on the importance of uh, the generational challenge with regard to China and our Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, I, I'm unaware that we pulled officers from posts in Asia to work on the task force. We did have some consular officers at some of our bigger, bigger posts in the world, like in Manila and New Delhi, helping to call American citizens in August. Uh, but we, we've not pulled officers from missions in okay. Well, I, I, I'll look forward to uh, getting the specific numbers of personnel and, and funding that have been freed I, up as a result would, of withdrawal. I could also say, Senator, in our both our 22 budget and our pending 23 request with OMB, as we look at increased personnel resources, uh, the number one bureau, the bureau that's getting the most new positions, is the East Asia Pacific Bureau in both in both years. All right, sir. How would you say that morale and confidence uh, in state has been affected by our uh, botched withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, Senator, with some humility, I'm not sure I can speak to the morale of 75,000 people who work for the department. I would say that uh, many people who stepped up uh, to volunteer either to go to Afghanistan or- I'm gonna, I'm gonna just briefly, respectfully interject. You're, you're one of the leaders of the State Department. Um, you're, you're supposed to have your finger on the pulse of, of, of the morale of, of uh, folks at the State Department. I, th I think you can at least make a generalization uh, about institutionally, organizationally, how, how, how folks on the line are doing right now so that we in Congress uh, might fulfill our oversight responsibilities. Well, Senator, the people who volunteered to go to Kabul or who worked on the task force felt a strong sense of mission to help uh, during the crisis, and I think felt that they did the best they could and, and managed to save a lot of lives. But I know people uh, who came back from Kabul airport who uh, are undergoing an emotional toll about the experience they went through. 
I think people, many people in the department served in Afghanistan over 20 years, so there's an array of emotions about uh, what was invested and what, what was lost. I, I think over, I over. I, I just, how can we possibly say in the end that the withdrawals left us better equipped diplomatically to face other challenges? I'll just end with that question. I think in a broad sense, Senator, uh, Afghanistan over the last, um, at least the last decade was, um, we were investing substantial sums in human resources, both at the Defense Department and the State Department and USAID, which was to, in some respects an opportunity cost. I remember uh, in the Obama administration in which I served, President Obama constantly asking the question, what am I getting for 20 to $40 billion a year and, and what is the opportunity cost of that? So ultimately the strategic shift away from Afghanistan allowing us to focus on the priority you started with, which is the challenge of China, uh, will be to our national benefit. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair and Secretary McKeon. Mr. Chair, I have a, a thought that I kind of maybe wanted to direct to the committee, uh, to the leadership of the committee, a concern of mine. Um, in discussions about Afghanistan in this committee and the Armed Services Committee, there's, there's analysis, as there should be, about the, the withdrawal and was it planned correctly. But I've not yet in any of my committees, and I'm not aware of it really happening in the Senate, of, the, of significant discussions and committee hearings about maybe the most pressing issue with respect to the Afghanistan withdrawal. We have brought tens of thousands of Afghans safely into the United States. Uh, they're in New Jersey, they're in Virginia, they're in New Mexico, they are in Indiana, they're in Wisconsin. I have visited two of the sites in Virginia. Quanta, uh, Quantico has about 5,000 Afghans on its base right now. Uh, Fort Lee has about 2,000. Fort Pickett has about 10,000. And I actually think the, the, the biggest marker of the success or failure of the Afghan evacuation is going to be the work that we do as a nation to help these families transition into being successful parts of American society. So my worry is I'm not hearing that as a focus of committee discussions. Some of the resettlement effort is owned by the State Department. The DHS is now the lead agency on the effort. Um, most of the Afghans, we are not SIVs, they're in a humanitarian parole situation that will need some adjustment at the end of a two-year period, and that would likely go through the Judiciary Committee. There's tremendous needs of the resettlement agencies. Those would likely be handled via appropriations. But I'm kind of wondering, from a Senate oversight of this critical mission going forward, um, I'd love it if, if this committee might have a hearing about the resettlement effort looking forward and what we're going to do for these families, or, or a number of the committees doing it together, because I think this is absolutely critical. When I went to Fort Lee at the end of August, right at the beginning of the evacuation, the, the plan at that time, and families are being told this, is that they might be on a military base for 10 days to two weeks. When I went to Quantico last Monday, a week ago, uh, this past Monday, the families are being told they might be there for three to four weeks. Um, there were 5,000 Afghans on that base. They were letting 50 depart that day. And I just did my math. Okay, 50 depart every day, that's 100 days. That's three or four months, not three or four weeks. It's all depending upon the resettlement agency's ability to find jobs and housing. Finding jobs 
in a tight labor market, I had a barbecue restaurant in Richmond call me the other day and say, I want to hire some Afghans because if I can't hire Afghans, I'm not able to hire anybody. There are some market conditions right now that could make a resettlement effort maybe easier than it would be at, at a time when the unemployment rate is high. But I'm just worried in, in the discussions about Afghanistan that we've had beginning in you know late August to now, I don't see a kind of organized discussion with a big spotlight on what do we need to do to successfully enable tens of thousands of Afghans to resettle and, and lead productive lives. And, and again, I don't know whether the Foreign Relations Committee is the right venue for that, or would it be HISCAC, or would it be judiciary, or would it be you know, appropriations, but I'm, I'm feeling a compelling need that we should be about it because that work is gonna be so tough. But, but the prospects of it being successful ultimately might be the most memorable thing about the, the end of the Afghan war. So I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I'm just kind of throwing it out there. I hope this committee might be able to take up this matter, maybe in tandem with other committees. Well, I thank the senator for his observations. I agree with you. We have 9,000 in New Jersey. I visited them at the McGuire Dix Lakehurst. Uh, and the process, as I understand it, one of the, it isn't uh, seem to be the labor opportunities. That seems to be uh, a real opportunity. As you point out, it's the housing mm -hmm. element that seems to be a challenge across the, the country. Uh, but to the extent that the committee has jurisdiction, I'm happy to consider it. And, and uh, to the extent that it exceeds our jurisdiction, we're happy to engage with other committees to see if we can have either a joint hearing uh, or at least create attention to what we do moving forward. So I, I very much appreciate that. I have one question for you. I'm, I'm happy to speak to, this, speak to this briefly if you wish, Senator Kane, but I don't want to chew up your time. Well, yeah, let me just ask you one question. The State Department has a health incidents response task force looking at the Havana syndrome issues. The previous leader of that task force left on September 23rd, and as far as I know, State has not appointed a new person to lead that task force. If I'm correct about that, can you tell me that you will get a good director running that task force ASAP? As I told Senator Shaheen, the Secretary is expected to make an announcement about a new coordinator in the next day or two. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. So on August 19th, President Biden vowed that uh, he would get every American out of Afghanistan before withdrawing U.S. forces. He stated, Americans understand we're going to try and get it done before August 31st. The president went on to say, and if there are American citizens left behind, we're going to stay until we get them out. This Saturday, I attended the funeral services and memorial service for the life of Riley McCollum, one of 13 of those soldiers. He was a U.S. Marine. A thousand people turned out in Wyoming to honor his life, a life he gave at the airport in Kabul. After I'm talking to you. Would you please pay attention? I'm, I'm listening, Senator. I'm looking at my notes on this very issue. And the next day, the president reiterated a point stating, let me be clear, any American who wants to come home will get, we will get you home. Mr. President of the United States, well, he didn't keep his word. On August 30th, the U.S. military evacuation ended with the last five planes leaving Kabul without a single American on board. 
The Biden administration left hundreds of Americans and thousands of Afghan partners behind enemy lines. The administration seems in deep denial, greatly miscalculating how many U.S. citizens they left behind. One or the other, deep denial or great miscalculation. On September 13th, Secretary Blinken said there were fewer than 200 American citizens in Afghanistan who wanted to leave. Yesterday, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Kyle testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee that there were 450 American citizens still in Afghanistan. He said 196 Americans were ready to leave Afghanistan. He also stated that since September 1st, the U.S. government has helped facilitate the departure of 234 U.S. citizens and 144 law permanent residents. I think today you testified to a different number. It's been almost two months since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. There are still American citizens trying to get home, to get to safety, still behind enemy lines. With no U.S. presence on the ground, What mechanism are you using to ensure the safe evacuation of Americans that the Biden administration left behind in Afghanistan? Senator Barrasso, we're working every day to try to bring out the Americans who wish to depart. We're working with a couple of airline companies that uh, are willing to go into the Kabul airport uh, to bring people out on on chartered aircraft. There's not normal commercial aircraft service right now at the Kabul airport. We have some flights uh, that we expect to go this week to bring out uh, several dozen Americans. Several dozen. When do you believe all Americans who want to leave Afghanistan will be evacuated? So the number, as I said earlier, of people ready to depart is uh, over 200. On the current pace, depending if we continue to have success with these charter flights, I think all of these people who say they are ready to depart will be offered an opportunity to depart in the next couple of weeks. So we have Americans still trapped in Afghanistan. What actions is this administration taking to help secure the safety and the well-being of these American citizens? So we were talking to the Taliban in Doha about their commitment to permit freedom to travel, particularly American citizens. And we're working with, as I said, a couple of airlines who are willing to go into the Kabul airport. They have agents on the ground who are checking the manifest, ensuring that people who are coming onto the planes have the right documents and It's something our task force, led by Ambassador Beth Jones, is working on hourly. The Taliban has taken over Afghanistan. They are a foreign terrorist organization. There is increased insecurity, movement restrictions, threats posed to civilians. Afghanistan is in crisis. No U.S. civilian, diplomat, or military presence in the country other than those being held. The administration wants to continue to provide foreign assistance, including economic support funds to Afghanistan. During his testimony before the House Subcommittee on National Security, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction stated, quote, a reduced U.S. civilian and military presence in Afghanistan among a deteriorating security environment could create new challenges for conducting effective oversight of U.S.-funded grants, programs, and contracts for reconstruction work. So the question is, given the fact that there is now no U.S. diplomatic or military presence in Afghanistan, is there any way to ensure U.S. taxpayer resources will be used appropriately and actually go to the intended recipients? Senator, the 
primary assistance we're providing in Afghanistan is humanitarian assistance through non-governmental organizations, UN agencies like the World Food Program. All of these organizations have long experience working in challenging environments where there's been civil war. Uh, so we have confidence in that system, but if we see anomalies or money seeping off to the Taliban, we will, we will stop the programs. We have a statutory provision you've given us that says no funding to the Taliban. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, before I recognize Senator Murphy, I just have to say I, I wish we had had the alarm bell sound when President Trump made a deal with the Taliban that told them with a date certain we will leave by this date that released thousands of Taliban prisoners to the Taliban that only augmented their fighting force, that ultimately uh, dramatically reduced our troop presence before this administration took over, and that got none of the commitments from the Taliban cemented before all those actions were taken. That set the stage. I don't excuse anybody for execution of what they decided, but it set the stage. Senator Murphy. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Brasso has left, but it takes a lot of guts to come down to this committee and lecture the administration about the conduct of foreign policy when right now, Senate Republicans are using extraordinary powers on the Senate floor to deny this administration the personnel they need to conduct this policy. Senator Barrasso is talking about whether or not U.S. taxpayer dollars are gonna be effectively administered in Afghanistan. I just came from the floor trying to get approval for two totally non-controversial USAID administrators who, whose job it is to oversee the expenditure of U.S. dollars in places in and around Afghanistan. And we were denied the ability to move two nominees that under any other administration would have gone by voice vote. The assistant secretary that oversees Afghanistan blocked. The assistant secretary that oversees refugee policy directly relevant to Afghanistan blocked by Republicans. And so spare me the righteous indignation about whether or not this administration is conducting foreign policy according to your priorities when you are at the same time denying the personnel necessary to protect this nation. Never before, never before has a minority party gone to this length to stop a president's diplomatic team from being put in place. President Trump, by this time, had nearly 20 ambassadors that were confirmed, 17 of them by voice vote. This president has four ambassadors in place. You know, it's like criticizing your buddy for not fighting back after you just tied his hands behind his back. Mr. Secretary, I wanted to talk to you about the impact of not having ambassadors. Um, we have great charges out there. They're fantastic, they're capable, but they're not ambassadors. And in my travels around the world, representing this committee and this Congress, there is a difference when you have an ambassador. There's a, a level of public diplomacy that an ambassador can engage in on behalf of the United States. There's frankly a level of meetings that can be secured in some countries uh, only by an ambassador, very different than what a charge can get. You just share with the committee what the impact is, the practical impact of not having ambassadors, and maybe further the practical impact of not having assistant secretaries in place 
to oversee our diplomacy. Yeah, thank you, Senator Murphy. You've put your finger on a very important issue that concerns us. Uh, as you say, we have very talented officers serving as charge de faire in dozens of countries around the world, but they were selected to be deputy chief of mission. They were not selected to be chiefs of mission. And usually in the progression in the foreign service, that's a, that's a job you hold before you get to be an ambassador. So people are doing what we would call a stretch assignment. Many of them are performing very well and leading their missions, but there are substantial costs. One you put your finger on, which is in some countries, the government at the highest level will not receive an American representative unless they are the ambassador. So we're not getting the meetings we need to have and having the influence that we want to have in that country. Secondly, the mission is, you know, it's an interagency mission. There are people from across the government serving in our embassies. Uh, having a, an accredited and confirmed ambassador leading that mission really makes a difference, having somebody who's empowered by the president and the secretary. Um, and then in Washington with assistant secretaries, you know, they're really, they drive the policy innovation. We can't all do it from the seventh floor. And having Senate-confirmed people recommended by the secretary, chosen by the president, it makes a big difference. The acting people we had in place were terrific, um, but they, I think some of them, after the last four years, weren't used to being empowered, and not all of them always took the initiative. So having the folks that we have chosen in place has made a difference. I can see it already with some of the assistant secretaries who've come in in the last few weeks. Um, thank you for that answer. And Mr. Chairman, thank you for being so vigilant about trying to move forward the president's national security team. I also know that this is largely um, a crisis uh, being created by one member of this committee, but it does seem to be spreading. Uh, I was just on the floor asking for these two USAID administrators, and it was not Senator Cruz objecting. It was, in this case, Senator Marshall. Uh, and so this remains a crisis that I hope this committee can get its head wrapped around. Um, lastly, just for the record, um, if I could send you some information on a bill that I'm introducing today with Senator Cornyn uh, on promoting um, more subnational diplomacy, trying to help uh, the department organize mayors and first selectmen and governors uh, to be able to represent the United States abroad. I know this is something you care deeply about and believe in. My time has expired, but um, I'd uh, love to continue to work with this committee and the administration on trying to um, buttress our official diplomatic corps with more Americans who want to represent the good things about America abroad. I'll be happy to look at that and talk to you about it, Senator. This is of, of great interest to the Secretary. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'd like to speak to Senator Murphy's uh, point and come to Senator Barrasso's defense. Uh, with all due respect, Senator Murphy, this is about priorities. This is about how the administration sets priorities. It's about how Senator Schumer sets priorities in terms of how he utilizes the time on the Senate floor. Since I've been here, I've seen the Board of Governors of the Postal Service seated. That time has been utilized to do that. Um, since I've been here, I've seen term appointees of the previous administration pushed out of their positions, again, leaving these departments uh, unsupervised. I myself was put through 30 hours of cloture before I could be named U.S. Ambassador to Japan. So this has to do with the set of priorities and how floor time is utilized. Um, I'd like to turn to you now, Deputy Secretary McCown. As you know, the government of Israel strongly opposes President Biden's plan to reopen a U.S. consulate for the, Palestinian, for the Palestinians in Jerusalem, a controversial plan that would establish a second competing U.S. mission in Israel's capital city. The Trump administration followed the law 
namely the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, by recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's eternal and undivided capital. That happened in 2017. And then by moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 2018. The Trump administration also closed the U.S. consulate to the Palestinians and merged its functions into the U.S. Embassy's Palestinian Affairs Unit under the chief admissions authority of the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. President Biden's proposal to open a second U.S. mission in Jerusalem would begin to reverse the recognition of Jerusalem, and it would divide Israel's eternal and undivided capital city. Yesterday, I led a group of 36 senators to introduce a bill that would protect America's full and faithful implementation of the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, and it would ensure that there is only one U.S. mission, a U.S. embassy to Israel, that exists in Israel's capital city of Jerusalem. Deputy Secretary McCown, I just want to confirm something on the record. Is it your understanding that under U.S. and international law, the government of Israel would have to provide its affirmative consent before the United States could open or reopen the U.S. consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem? Or does the Biden administration believe it can move forward to establish a second U.S. mission in the Israel capital city of Jerusalem without the consent of the government of Israel? Senator, that's my understanding that we need the consent of the host government to open any diplomatic facility. That's my understanding as well, yet I don't understand that as the intention of this administration. So I appreciate you being on the record clarifying that that's a requirement. Um, I know this isn't necessarily your decision, you'd be an implementer here, but the State Department should know that Congress has enacted laws that mandate that the United States should recognize Jerusalem as the eternal and undivided capital of Israel and that it shall take all diplomatic steps to effectuate this recognition. Opening a second U.S. mission in Israel's capital city of Jerusalem will start to reverse this process. My next question, Deputy Secretary McCain. Briefly, Senator, where there's no intention to move the U.S. Embassy from Jerusalem. I want to make certain that's the case. We voted uh, 97 to 3 to make certain that that was the case. Um, Deputy Secretary McGowan, I want to focus on the bipartisan issue of modernizing the State Department for the 21st century. As a former diplomat, I'm personally committed to this issue. In July, Senator Cardin and I held a subcommittee hearing on this topic. And during that hearing, former Deputy Secretary Stephen Began said, and I quote, change is desperately, urgently needed if the department is to continue to serve the interest of the United States of America and the interest of the people in the employ of the Department of State. It's been 41 years since the Congress last passed legislation on this issue, and I believe it's now time for Congress to modernize the Foreign Service Act of 1980. I hope to work with Senator Cardin and the other members of the committee on this issue. Deputy Secretary McCown, do you agree with former Deputy Secretary Began that change is, quote, desperately and urgently needed at the State Department? So the modernization agenda that the Secretary is announcing this morning um, is precisely because we, we know that we have a historic moment where we need to enable the department for the challenges of the next several decades. I'm glad we agree on that. Do you commit to working with this committee, as well as the subcommittee on State Department Management to reform the State Department, including testifying on this subject when necessary? Yes, of course. Thank you. Um, I understand from your testimony that State is conducting a review on cybersecurity, digital policy, and emerging technologies. I also understand that you're contemplating a new cyber office that's going to report to Deputy Secretary Sherman. I hope to work with you and the department to ensure that a highly capable and technically proficient nominee is appointed to that position. Thank you. We welcome your suggestions to 
yes, we're announcing a, a new policy on, or bureau, excuse me, on cyberspace and digital uh, policy. I think it's critically and we important. We'll need to work with this committee and other committees to work through the notification process and get your consent. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. Uh, Senator Cardin, I think you yeah, I, I just wanted to acknowledge Secretary McCoon. I did get your letter this morning. And, uh, I just had a chance to read it, so I just want to acknowledge for the record that the letter. Yeah, was. thank you, Senator. I'm sorry it took till this morning. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I have one final question for you, then we'll, uh, we'll adjourn. Uh, I applaud the recent announcement of the new Cyber Bureau and uh, the uh, Technology Special Envoy, as well as the work that the State Department has already done to center recent diplomatic efforts on technological cooperation. Uh, the, the question for me, uh, including the, the concerns I have about IT security, repeated cyber intrusions of the department's networks and systems, uh, what steps are you planning to take to ensure that the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy and the Special Envoy for Critical and Emerging Technologies will be successful in achieving their missions? And particularly, how do you plan to clarify the distinct missions uh, between the Bureau and the Technology Special Envoy? How do you, how do you intend to deconflict their yeah. objectives and strategies? Yeah, thank you, Senator. We think there's uh, enough space for both because of the different uh, work priorities that we expect them to undertake. The Cyber and Digital Policy Bureau will focus on international cybersecurity policy, digital freedom, international digital policy, working with the International Telecommunications Union, trusted telecom issues, and the like. The Special Envoy on emerging, critical and emerging technologies will focus in the first instance on issues like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, biotechnology, making sure that our engagement with both these sectors, the rest of the government and technology partners is, is advanced and in the right place. So part of the reason to have both of these entities reporting to Deputy Secretary Sherman directly, at least for the first year, is to ensuring uh, harmony in their missions and then they're, they're, excuse me, not stepping all over each other. Well, we, we look forward to your continuing engagement with the committee as you uh, create this reorganization and structure. Uh, and, uh, but we applaud, uh, this is an area we think is incredibly important. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to echo um, the, the points that you're making and say that it's critically important that uh, in these positions we get people with the right technical proficiency. Um, the evolution of these uh, technologies is moving rapidly. And I think it's going to be critically important that we get people that are deeply trained and immer immersed in this uh, technology and the evolution that's underway. And again, uh, we look forward to working with you closely on selecting those nominees. Yeah, thank you, Senator. One of the reasons we created two separate entities rather than one large entity d dealing with both is they're in some ways quite distinct and it's hard to find one person who's versed in both, both of these skill sets. So that was part of the thinking. The record of this hearing will remain to the close of business tomorrow. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>